every morning when I get up and hear, I'm sorry if this is very banal, but when I hear the coffee brewing, I start it and it's the sound of it brewing and the choice of the cup I'm going to drink it from. It is a truly a new dawn, a new day, a new opportunity to do something good for myself or other people, a new chance not to fail. And the coffee is delicious because it has within it all of that promise. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hey, hello, everybody. Uh, I'm going to say a word about Rachel Kushner, who is best known as a novelist, and she's the author of the novels Telex from Cuba, The Flamethrowers, and The Mars Room, as well as a collection of three shorter pieces, The Strange Case of Rachel Kay, and a new shorter piece called The Mayor of Leipzig that she must have written in the last few minutes almost. Um, The range of what she's made her own territory is quite inspiring and almost hard to believe. Among contemporary American writers, there are few who have personally been as adventurous as she has, risking her physical well-being in a remarkable variety of circumstances. But at the same time, she seems to have read a staggering number of books and comes closer to being a full-fledged intellectual than all but a handful of fiction makers. Her ability to credibly incorporate into her fiction her own experience and what she's read and what she's learned from talking to people, what is sometimes called research, is fantastic, and she even knows about contemporary art. Her appetite for life and her amazing ability to identify with people who have had the worst possible luck shine out from her collection of 19 essays written over 20 years called The Hard Crowd, which is in a way a wonderful partial portrait of the author containing her thoughts on some of her favorite writers, as well as fascinating accounts of experiences in Europe and Palestine and San Francisco, where she grew up. And so I'm going to take advantage of the fact that I'm not a professional interviewer. I'm going to really ask questions inspired by this book that... uh, I feel like asking, um, whatever they might be. And the book is, uh, in a way, an autobiography or beginning of one. And uh, so I'll ask ask questions about uh, you, Rachel, some of them. Um, And you're someone that people may want to model themselves on in different ways. So, um, you know, so I think I'll start with the issue of politics because we're talking to the Haymarket crowd and, you know, they, they're they interested in those things. And in your book, you, you clearly... You know, you reveal that you you you're quite radical in your sympathies, and um, you know you you write about your trip to Palestine. You write about the the uh, writings of Balestrini, who wrote about the extremely radical Italian working class of his period. And you even talk about uh, the advantages of abolishing prisons. Um, 
So I'll ask a question that's I am obsessed with, and you may say, I don't find that interesting and I'm not going to answer it, but you pay American taxes, you live in America, you get the advantages of living in a prosperous country rather than, uh, you know, living in, in Ethiopia. Um, and, you know, you participate in the capitalist system and benefit from it in, in uh, certainly even the image we're looking at it. Those shelves have to be in a in a house somewhere rather than a tent. Um, so, what do you feel about that? Do you feel bad about about it? Do you feel you have to atone for your life? Uh, I mean, that's a stupid way of putting it, but I think about it. Thank you, Wally. Um, first, thanks for that really nice introduction. I almost felt like um, when a family member praises you and you feel like you're getting, um, you know, the sweetest sort of bias available, but you aren't a family member. You just have a very warm manner. So um, anyway, thank you for saying those things. Um, I think it's a great question. Um, and it is something that I know you think about because it sort of forms, if you will, the, the sinew of the narrative thread of your book, Night Thoughts, uh, at least to me as the reader of that book. And I know we've, we've talked about that book and this feeling of having come from a certain level of comfort and how, you know, your relationship to that maybe has changed over the years, at least since childhood, or maybe how you define yourself by comparison with, for instance, the life that your father led um, and the manner in which he led it. Um, the bookshelves are Ikea, which doesn't, you know, is neither <laughs> here nor there. I'd love to have those fancy custom bookshelves that a lot of authors uh, seem to have now that we get to, um, you know, uh, scopophilically spy into everyone's quarters uh, since the pandemic and the evolution of our use of these platforms. Yes, I live in a house. Do I feel guilty about my level of comfort? Well, I'm not an expert in having like a discourse in this regard, but I'm just going to try to answer like in a personal way, as though you and I were in a room and this wasn't me going on record and saying, you know, this is my definitive policy on what people deserve and what we should feel guilty about or comfortable having. Sometimes, I mean, this word privilege gets used quite a lot. Some of the things that people refer to as privilege might in fact be better suited to a category called rights. It's not for me to decide that um, ultimately, but I have had that thought. Sometimes I think when people quote unquote acknowledge their own privilege, it's like a form of housekeeping I fear has been drained of meaning, where by acknowledging that they're incredibly fortunate, they don't have to worry anymore about the difference between them and other people. Um, I continue to worry about all kinds of differences in society. In terms of being an American, um, you mentioned Ethiopia. I don't, I can't remember how these work, but there's something called the Gini coefficient, which is like, now I want to look it up, something to do with um, the GNP of the, uh, I was about to say the corporation, or the GNP of the nation compared with the social welfare uh, policies, how much they spend per um, citizen or denizen. I know the word citizen is problematic nonetheless. How much they how much they spend on their population. The United States probably has a pretty low Gini coefficient. Where I live, Los Angeles, I think you're here at the moment, you said. Um, if you adjust for the cost of housing, Los Angeles has the highest poverty rate in California. 
adjusted for the cost of housing, California has the highest poverty rate in the United States. So there is dire poverty right here in L.A. You don't even have to go um, far afield to see it. When I think about that, what I think, and this is just pure speculation, when people look back at the past now and they think, gosh, you know, those people in the 1950s were so um, insensitive, so outwardly racist, for instance, um, you know, we see things that were acceptable in films, in yearbooks, um, you know, in, in terms of how outwardly um, blunt white people were with their racism, that's no longer acceptable. I sometimes wonder if 30 years hence, we will look back at this time when we became, and we is, is, I don't really like that term, but when the average middle-class person could walk by a human being in extremis on the sidewalk and keep going, I wonder if in decades, future decades, we will think, oh, that was a time when people were inured to devastation and poverty and just learned to live with it as though it were hailing or there were a tropical storm outside. Does that make sense what I'm saying? So that's just one thought I have. In terms of like myself, I don't know. I mean, I have health insurance. I got, you know, I, I like my husband, but I married him to get on his insurance plan. And I'm grateful for that because I used to have Kaiser, which is, you know, one of the cheaper plans if you buy it on your own. Um, but it's kind of like the Burger King of healthcare, which is no, no shade on Burger King. You know, if you're very poor and you need to buy a meal, it is affordable. And Kaiser was the same way. So I do have certain things that I think everybody deserves to have. Um, I feel incredibly fortunate if that's also what you mean, like not that many writers get to do what they love to do and get the encouragement that I actually think writers need. If you've written and published books, you do feel emboldened to continue doing that. And I think it would be so much harder to do if I did it in a vacuum and didn't have other people supporting my work. So in that way, I just feel incredibly fortunate, but I'm not racked with guilt about it. I more feel determined to get better. And I love that feeling of that kind of um, like bracing ambition where you know that you aren't where you want to be yet and you have more time to get there. Incredible. Yeah. And it almost goes without saying, but I'll ask anyway, because it's sort of part of the same question. You, your contribution to making the world a better place is is in your writing that you hope will get even better. You're not, are you motivated at all to become involved or are you involved in activism or, or protests or, or chaining yourself to <laughs> pipelines or, or other people? Well, you know, it's so interesting to use this term contribution because I'm going to answer the question, but I want to digress just very quickly um, and tell you that uh, when I was a child, um, my my parents, you know, they were kind of like hippie beatniks in between those two generations um, in terms of their own age. But eventually they both became scientists. And my my father was a graduate student when I was growing up. And he would always say to me, you know, what is your what is your contribution going to be? Um, even starting at the age of five, six, seven, <laughs> this was stuck in my head. What is your contribution going to be? So like if you're raised by people who have books, who think about culture, who listen to jazz, who are engaged in the world and very much my parents were engaged in the civil rights movement. They were you know, they were both freedom writers and um, are very defined, I think, generationally by that experience. So it was a certain amount of pressure. Um, like, what's your contribution going to be? And I, you know, I, they do believe, I 
think, in art and poetry. And they were both very involved in poetry, partly, you know, by virtue of having been just after this kind of beatnik generation, they were really interested in that world. So they value art as a contribution. It's not the same contribution, I guess, as maybe figuring out nuclear fusion, which is apparently, according to my son, like the the thing that's going to save us if somebody um, can solve that question. Um, in terms of activism, I mean, writing itself is probably not activism. Art is its own special category. I really believe that. And I think it has um, a sanctity bordering on religious sanctity. And it's part of how we understand ourselves and make something that has more grace in it than we do and can hover beyond the thoughts that any even reasonably inspired and smart person could conjure that day. Like the piece of writing has more in it and it's more than the sum of its parts. And you work on it slowly and patiently, and then you release it into the world. But I don't tell myself, like, I'm making a major contribution. It's it's more like this is how I know how to live, which is to synthesize what I'm interested in and the voices that I hear. I'm really interested in cadence and how other people talk and what's incredible about them and the small things a person notices that I notice that I know only I'm noticing. So I am beholden to write it down and maybe figure out what it means and braid it into a scene or into a character. So that's really all I know about that in terms of whether my art or anyone's art is making a significant contribution. Um, about activism itself, you, well, I, I wasn't raised with any religion, but there is a part of me that is very interested in aspects of, uh, dare I say, a Christian tradition in terms of believing that everyone on this planet possesses a soul and that I want to honor other people, not just in my work, but in my life and do no harm, um, but maybe also go out of my way to help people when I know that I can. Um, I try to. Just today, I spoke to a friend of mine. I got a collect call from Central California Women's Facility um, right before this began, or, or at 11 a.m. I still had time to speak from my friend Christy Clinton Phillips, who was charged and tried and convicted and sentenced um, to life twice at the age of 15. And she continues to be in prison now. And um, she calls me and I visit her when I can and other people as well. And it's a small thing. And I do feel a lot of guilt that I'm not helping my friends in prison more. It's hard because they just stay in there and I'm out here and things move very slowly for people in terms of um, their legal situation with the courts, their parole situation with the state parole board, their standing with the prison. And my life moves fast. And I always trying to remember them and connect them with lawyers or write letters on people's behalf or just be somebody who says, how are you? Because for people in prison, I, I feel like they, they don't get to be a certain version of themselves with other people inside. Maybe sometimes on occasion, but I think that there's a version of the person that is has to kind of toughen up, you know? I mean, so it's nice to be somebody who can just listen and be loving and pay attention. So that matters to me. And in terms of the streets, I mean, July of 2020 was a really um, incredible time, I think, for American people. And it was history making. And I was in touch with a lot of my older friends and older relatives who I also just consider friends, people in their 80s, and talking to them about what was happening after George Floyd was murdered. 
And my aunt, Dee Dee Halleck, who's been an activist lifelong, you know, started training at the Highlander Center when uh, in nonviolence, when she was 14, 15 years old, she's hitchhiking there. And I said to her last summer, is this what it was like? And she said, no, it was not widespread like this. Obviously, we didn't have social media, but this up this was an uprising and we were all part of it. And I wanted to be part of it. And my son and my husband wanted to be part of it. And we live walking distance from downtown, which was a, in L.A. was a real site of action. There's the federal court building and the criminal courts and city hall, obviously. And and every day we could walk down there, you know, because kids didn't really have to be in school. I mean, I guess it was summer, but, um, you know, every day we went we went down there and we participated. And I continue to feel that this has been um, a, a historic paradigm shifting life defining moment, you know, July of 2020. And just thinking about this person, George Floyd, who did not choose to become any kind of martyr, but nonetheless um, has had to bear the weight of incredible symbolic significance, the, you know, emanations of which will continue to unfold into the future. I don't think we don't even know yet what that what that moment means, but I wanted to to be a part of it for sure. Incredible. You know, you 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 mentioned, well, your parents generation and also Christianity, but did in your parents generation or let's say for people in general in the 50s and 60s and writers in particular, Eastern philosophy was very important. I mean, Zen or Buddhism or um, Salinger was even into ancient Hindu scriptures, Allen Ginsberg. Does, have you, I mean, it's in a way, none of you can say I don't want to talk about it, but have you dabbled in any of that uh, reading or thought about those texts or or does that play any part in in your life it does not um you know maybe because my parents are scientists they're very uh analytical people and um you know to them religion at was not of interest in any way ever they just thought it was all nonsense so that element maybe or angle on beat culture, like Allen Ginsberg and his white robes and people going off to India um, was not at all appealing to them. Of course, they know, you know, I've, I've, I've been aware of people like that on the periphery. When I was a younger kid, we, uh, I was born in Eugene, Oregon, which was where we lived till I was 10. And Eugene was a kind of Mecca for people in the seventies who were following various Eastern religious ideas. And there were kids at school who were um, uh, kind of the early um, arrivers in Oregon from the Rajneesh. Can I call it a cult? I know that's like part of the, you know, that's a, a bit more extreme, but I remember them very strongly from when I was little because some of the kids were in my school and they dressed all in orange and the parents were all in purple. And there was a lot of that going on um, in Oregon, but my family never took any part in any <laughs> of it. Um, I had a friend around the corner. You, the other thing about you, I mean, Eugene had all these hippies, but um, it also was a logging community with um, big paper mills right outside of town. And many of our neighbors worked in the logging industry. So kind of more, you know, like, very working class, very, very conservative, very Christian. And I had a friend named Jessica Whitehead who said, you know, if you don't pray before dinner and before you go to bed, you're going to burn in a pot of fire in hell. And, um, and I was very worried about that for years. <laughs> so I guess, you know, religion interested me in the sense that a child can start to see structures of belief and structures of of I well I guess social mores based on belief 
that are not practiced in their home, but might apply later? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I would say being not an expert remotely on those things, you know, you quote the the poet who was crucial in your family, Alan Ved Buskirk, as, as saying he was someone who found the kingdom of heaven on earth in a bordello, a gas station, or at the soft serve window. Right. That is a, I mean, that's a zen, I mean, pardon me, because I, if I could have lived longer, might have really studied those things, but I don't know anything about it. But I know that's a kind of Zen point of view. And a lot of the essays in the book show great admiration and and, and respect for uh, people with that, uh, people who have a, a kind of attitude like Alan Van Buskirk, uh, Alden Van Buskirk. It's 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 um, somehow you absorbed it without maybe not through your parents or they absorbed things that they didn't think they were absorbing. I mean, I personally, for instance, am a child of the '60s who missed out on the '60s completely and and had no connection to any of the great things that were happening. And yet somehow today I'm a sixties person in many ways. So it's, it's, it's interesting. You also are, I mean, you obviously respect, I mean, from the book, you can tell you enormously respect skill, people who can do something fix a car or or play an instrument i mean you respect this enormously but but you also respect a lot of people who have from the outside world's point of view not accomplished anything including people who spend a lot of time taking drugs uh drinking uh people who who and yet you have accomplished a tremendous amount. But your admiration for people who didn't accomplish that much is 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 way above the average. <laughs> well, should I respond or yes. Okay. Well, first I want to go back to um I'm glad you mentioned the poet Alden Van Buskirk. Um, and this essay that I wrote, um, that's in the book, um, Tramping in the Byways, I think that's what it's called, Tramping in the Byways. So, you know, Alden, Alden was a poet who was my parents' best friend and, um, they knew each other. Um, they knew Alden independently of each other. And, um, he was sort of how they met my mother was friends with Alden and so was my father. My father and Alden went to college together and it was quite um, clear to everyone um, in college that Alden was extremely special and a really gifted poet. And then um, he died of a very rare blood disease uh, at the age of 23. And um, it's still painful for my parents to think about that. Um, it just had an enormous impression on their, on them, you know, an enormous impact, sorry, on their lives, the death of Alden. And, uh, later his poems were collected and published in an edition that Allen Ginsberg provided a forward to. He had been sent the poems and really liked them and wanted them to be published. And the essay that I wrote is, was a preface to a book by David Rattray who um, is a poet in his own right and was, um, he's deceased, and also was uh, an early translator of Antonin Artaud, the City Lights reader of Artaud. He had translated 
And Rattray was somebody that went to college with my father and Alden. And um, he had written this book, How I Became One of the Invisible, which I contributed, not a preface actually, but an afterword to. And the book opens with this portrait of these incredibly alive people that David Rattray is just completely taken with in the same way that someone might be taken with um, a great writer that they've never read before, you know, like a Proust or Dostoevsky. And he's been introduced to Alden and he's further been introduced to somebody not at all in college who never really went to any school, uh, Johnny Sherrill, who was very close to my parents and knew Alden and was, I write about him in the essay who, you know, was, had gone to prison for robbing a train when he was a teenager and learned machining in prison and became a metal worker later and was around uh, my whole life. He only died, well, I guess over 20 years ago, but, you know, went deep into my adulthood and these were people who whatever they did was compelling. And David Rattray admires them. And I quote him in my essay in the way that he sees Alden and Johnny both living in the kingdom of earth as if it were heaven here. And, you know, he says with a certain amount of um, envy that Alden can walk into a bordello and just start talking pimp talk, you know, and start kind of rolling with the stream of the spirit where he is this very bookish person who doesn't really know how to analyze that kind of living poetry, but he appreciates it very much. And when I read about people who were part of my parents' personal lives in literature, in a book that Semiotext published that was excerpted in Bomb magazine, I thought, oh, we can take our share in literature. These people that I've been around my whole life, I can write about them and it can become fiction. And, you know, Alden and Johnny were both very involved in this world in North St. Louis, where my parents also lived before I was born. And I would go there with them. And to put it bluntly, it, it's a black world. And um, it was a, a really wonderful world and full of complexity and art. You know, I'm interested in the art of how people live and the way that they speak and the things that they do. I mean, maybe that sounds stupid. Um, it's hard to think and speak at the same time. Um <laughs> But I think that like my ideas about who has value and should be portrayed in literature isn't really based on like what that person has accomplished or maybe some lifestyle things you mentioned, like drinking and drugging. I'm not so concerned really with that, except that some people decide to live very firmly in the present tense. And I think that the commitment to that is something that have always uh, considered a form of valor, like, especially when I was younger, I mean, mostly when I was younger, that people who weren't worried about the future, you know, weren't afraid of it and were going to, um, gain the respect of their peers in the moment and do what was required to achieve that, that is a form of valor. And I think that that has affected me and what I, who I'm interested in and what I want to write about. And, and pretty much, pretty much all, all the people, people that you, you now I'm no, hearing myself double somehow. Oh, no, I'm not anymore. Um, I, I, I think the great majority of the people that come off well in your essays and in your head, maybe, are are people who do have, you use the word valor, but, but physically courageous people. I mean, do you place it? You seem to, I mean, compared to most uh writers who don't think about this, uh, you place a terrific amount of uh, 
you play it's very important to you that people are physically courageous and you yourself have been i mean and i don't know if you could even respect someone who is physically a coward um is this is there anything to that Um, I was I was muted, by the way, and that's a you know was muted, did not mute myself. Um, I, I'm sure that I do and can um, respect people who, as you just described, might be physically not courageous or cowardly. I mean, that's I'm I'm can be plenty cowardly myself sometimes. Um, I have to think about this. I mean, I think that. Um, so in the world of like mechanical know-how, techne, you know, um, as Heidegger might have put it, um, I think that even, you know, when I was very little, I was interested in people who had mechanical know-how. Um, it's a little sad that I don't have more mechanical know-how myself. I mean, what I'm interested in for other people is not necessarily what I'm interested in for myself. I don't really have the patience, although in the years when I was like very actively riding motorcycles, I could do basic maintenance on a bike and, and had to, because I wanted to ride these like temperamental Italian bikes. Um, but I also knew how to graft myself to people who had a lot of knowledge in that regard. Um, my father was a good mechanic when I was a kid, a kind of, I would say gifted and resourceful mechanic, you know, for whom like, he would buy a car for $35 and then have to do a valve job on the engine. And I remember him doing that in the driveway of our house in Eugene, Oregon. And it just really impressed me in the way that other people would come over who had skills and know-how and people would do things together in the old fashioned kind of barn raising manner. We would go to a motorcycle show on the weekend and there'd be open pits and you'd see people working on bikes. Um, I don't know. I just, I was always interested in it. Um, but it's it doesn't doesn't exist for me in a hierarchy of people knowing more physically being more advanced than 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 people who know less. But um, I don't know. I'm impressed with all kinds of skills that that people have. Like, I mean, in terms of I think maybe you are thinking of things that require a certain amount of risk also, like to the courage. Um, That has come up a lot with this book because of that long first essay uh, in which I narrate this race where you start in San Diego and go to the end of the Baja Peninsula over the course of a day. And it's 1100 miles and, you know, the race doesn't exist anymore. And it was a very crazy race and very dangerous. But the process of preparing for that race didn't feel crazy and dangerous. It felt endlessly methodical and precise because it's, uh, you know, takes a lot of preparation to build a road bike slash race bike that's capable of handling that. You know, it needs to be small and life enough to corner in the mountains, you know, you know, between the border and Ensenada and then it needs to have a lot of power for the straightaways, be able to go 150 miles an hour. And it needs to have braided brake cables that aren't going to break on your ride and all that. So when I think back now of that time, I think more of precision than I do of, you know, kind of reckless bravura. I'm sure some of that was required, but I don't remember it quite as well. Well, that may be the way all physically daring people feel. I mean, that they're not thinking of it in quite that that way. But it is, um, yeah, it's fascinating that you're you're more in the Hemingway category than the Henry James category in terms of your own um, life and the people that you've hung with and the stuff you've you've done i mean let me ask another except unlike hemingway you know um i my brain hasn't been destroyed by alcohol or traumatic brain injuries and i love my mother very much <laughs> yes well 
Yeah, I'm not saying that you have enormous similarities. I'll ask you a question that is, you can pass on this one too. You, you, I was just struck that you don't seem to show in your book very much bitterness about men or, or, or how you've been treated by them or what they're like. I mean, I happen to be some kind of a man and I, 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 I note it with interest. Huh, yeah, definitely no bitterness. Um, I mean, even the very idea of bitterness is something I want to keep away from me for good, you know? Um, and when I see people exhibiting it, um, they kind of honestly become a model of what to try to avoid in myself. Like, Maybe it sounds cheesy, but I, I, I want to be, be, I don't know, just um, happy with what I've been able to do with my life and not be in a state of rancor or thinking that I deserve things that I haven't gotten. I really don't even know what it would mean to define myself in that way as if there were a list of things I think I'm should get. I don't know really what anybody deserves, you know, beyond basic human dignity. Um, I mean, I I'm generalizing and I know that your question is, is not meant for an answer. Like it's, it's intended to have a more specific answer to do with like gender and gender politics. Um, I think I've been pretty lucky in a lot of ways in that regard. I don't really feel like I've been passed over because of my gender. Um, so it's not really something that I would ever complain about or think about or feel complaints about, which is not to say that other women have not suffered that and experienced that, you know, they have, and they do. Um, but for my own self, my personal life, I think having a mother who, however she does it, conveys to a child, a girl child, um, that, you know, or a child who later decides they are a girl child, um, conveys to that child that there are no barriers that are based on gender that that message takes root really deeply in the person and um, can even manifest maybe as a total disregard for male authority and probably <laughs> has in my case. Um, and I think I'm not alone in that. I was just reading this uh, profile of a harpsichord player. She's She makes records that are more like pop contemporary music, but she, I'm sorry, not harpsichord, harp. I'm just a little nervous. I know the difference between a harp and a harpsichord. Uh, named Mary Lattimore. There was a profile of her in the New York Times last week. And in it, she talked about going to a recital with her mother when she was a child. Her mother was a harp teacher. And the car broke down and they couldn't get to the recital. And they were in the parking lot of an Arby's. Remember Arby's? And her mother said, she said, a child devastated, you know, all the preparation work that you do to perform. And um, her mother said, let's get out the harp and you're going to perform right here, right now. <laughs> and I think that that's the kind of thing that my mother maybe would have done. And the message from it is that you can do things in your own way, you know. And so I was really lucky to have somebody maybe give me that um, message. And it might have affected I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just who I am, but like when I read a novel or when I watch a movie, I'm not necessarily, sometimes I'm waiting for the women to appear. Like, you know, I get a little bored of Sam Peckinpah movies because it's just all men. Um, but usually, and or often when I'm reading a book or I'm watching a movie, I will identify with wherever subjectivity lies. So like if the main character, you know, is a man and I'm being shared their interior discourse, then that's 
that's my proxy into the book. And I'm not thinking I'm barred from uh, an identification with this character because the character happens to be a male. I think I feel great trespass in that regard. And it makes me wonder about the boundless mystery of the parameters of gender and that maybe it's a lot broader than we think it is. Because I know for myself writing fiction that I do feel that it's quite broad and that there's maybe like a part of me that can function in a male way or as an honorary male. And so I allow myself that. That's the privilege of writing in part, but I'm fascinated that you, that you resist a bitterness. I mean, uh, you know, speaking as someone who is not always bitter, but uh, certainly every other day, uh, I, 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 I must admit, I, I am so, and um, so. If if there's a an article in the paper and it it lists. American writers, and they don't put you at the top. Uh, what do you feel? Or I mean, do you not feel it? Or or uh, I mean, I I'm speaking. For instance, there was an article in a newspaper which uh, discussed. Well, it, it named. I mean, I write plays, and it named sort of the last era of, in during my lifetime, as sort of the era of a particular writer of plays. It was his era. And then it listed uh, a bunch of other playwrights in numbered order uh and i was in there and and some people were impressed uh, that i was really i mean i was in the list pretty far down or it seemed to me far down and I'm still apparently thinking about it as I'm mentioning it very embarrassingly to you, but you, you're not into it. Well, okay. That's interesting. I have a few thoughts on this. Um, I, I think that, you know, if, if you were upset with your, <laughs> your, your number, your slot in the hierarchy on this list, that's that's human. I'm not going to deny that people sometimes have those feelings, you know, but um, stepping back from them with little distance, this is abstracted for me because, you know, it's it's your um, career and your ego and your sensitivities, not my own. So it's easier to look into. But to generalize, maybe the problem is more the form of the list and the idea that an era can be defined by any one writer or playwright, which kind of speaks to the um, the limitations of journalism, where people are making these kind of claims. You know, I never liked that that um, first person plural, one of our finest, blah blah blah. It's just so cheesy and embarrassing. Like, because who is we, and what constitutes fine? Um, and two more thoughts on that. I mean, if you if you were at the top of the list, if you were the playwright who was generation defining and you were really, really thrilled and pleased by that, then you've come to subscribe to the hierarchy itself and will still be dominated by it when you and all of us inevitably start to drop down lower and lower on the list. <laughs> so if you give credence to these kinds of formats, then you fall prey to their own give and take, you know, system. They give and they take away. But so like, 
the psychoanalyst famous Lacan, Jacques Lacan, like as I understand it, I'll butcher this if there's any real Lacanians watching this, sees that there are like two axes. There's the symbolic axis, the symbolic axis, which is vertical. It's you and a symbolic universe that you ascribe toward, usually defined originally by the law of the father, shall we say. And then there's the horizontal axis where it's you and your competing siblings, the other people out there in the world. And it's a kind of illusory axis, the horizontal axis. And it's the bad one. Because if you structure your reality around you with your peers on this axis, then anything that they get, they are actively taking away from you. And I do think it's important to remember that that is an illusion. My first thought, finally, I'll close my long answer to this question. When you said there were other people named first on the list, or when you asked me, what would you do if you weren't named on the list of American authors or something like that? And I think if I had a minute to think about it, I would ask myself, what makes me think I'm more deserving than they are? Which isn't to say I I don't think I'm, you know, a better writer than some other people or I don't really respect their writing or whatever. But a lot of that is subjective. And I feel a certain power in that humility, even a great power. So it's humble and it's not humble. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Can I ask you? Some life questions uh, that more or less as in a medical form that you would fill out. And but you can I mean, it's everybody has a limited amount of energy and time. So. I mean, personally, I feel I spend about 98 percent of my time on. I don't know, laundry. <laughs> brushing teeth, uh, eating, uh, things that seem non-negotiable that I have to do. And there's a little scrap of, of life left. Um, but there are many different things that are, uh, you know, that, that one could spend time on. Um, interestingly, in your book, for instance, you I was fascinated, particularly because you grew up in San Francisco. You one thing you never mention, almost never, is is food. Like, do you care? I mean, are you like uh, does it bother you uh, that you have a lousy sandwich that is given to you <laughs> in a place where you've gone to eat lunch do you does it or is that are those kinds of bourgeois pleasures not particularly obsessions of yours um yeah i would say i don't know if i'm using this term right but i'm not really an epicurean like <laughs> I, you know food and drink and the sensual life like um I'm more ambiance, ambience. I always mispronounce that. If I go to a restaurant, I want it to feel a certain way. Usually it's like very old fashioned. You know, I go to the Tex, which is my neighborhood restaurant in Los Angeles, which feels like a special occasion establishment in maybe Peoria, Illinois, or maybe Fargo. And um, the decorations in there haven't changed since the 1960s. And I just feel comfortable there. Um, I don't, I will not scan a QR code on my fucking phone to look at a menu. <laughs> I just won't do it. Um, but I also, if left to my own devices, if food's not that important to me, to be honest, I was at a, I, I was left to my own devices at a residency, a wonderful residency, um, in France this summer, um, at the Maison Dora Mar, um, in Minerb and you have to kind of, you have to feed yourself there, which is fine. But for me, it just means like I eat the same thing every single day and I don't turn on the stove. I turned it on once and started a grease fire. So <laughs> I just avoided that completely. I would just like throw leaves in a bowl, eat some salad, 
toast, you know, just very basic things. Um, I was thinking about what you said about spending time doing laundry. The, I remember when I was young and living in New York, I was working at Bomb Magazine, and I heard a story from this painter, Michael Goldberg, an ab, uh, abstract expressionist painter who died some years back, talking about the painter Larry Poons. And he said that when Larry Poons first hit it big, when he sold his first real show, he went down to Canal Street and he bought 300 pairs of Levi's, 500 <laughs> T-shirts, 500 pairs of underwear and 500 pairs of socks. And he said, I'm never doing my laundry again. And when I load, I just said this to Jason the other night, I was loading the dishwasher and I said, fuck, you know, the thing is you want to just load it once and be done. But um, we have to keep doing this day in and day out. But then there is something about daily habits that's very sweet, I think. There might even be a real soulfulness to habit, you know, and I and I and I love habit, the ritual of it. Every morning when I get up and hear, I'm sorry if this is very banal, but when I hear the coffee brewing, I start it and it's uh, the sound of it brewing and the choice of the cup I'm gonna drink it from. It is a truly a new dawn, a new day, a new opportunity to do something good for myself or other people, a new chance not to fail. And the coffee is delicious because it has within it all of that promise. Amazing. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, my mother made it very clear to me at one point. I said to her, well, I think I'm a hedonist. And she said, well, we're not hedonists in our family. I mean, she was quite opposed to it. You're you're not what other people would call a hedonist, but in your own way, with the cup of coffee, you, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you're not against pleasure, but you're not, you're just not that addicted, perhaps, to some of the bourgeois things that a lot of people are interested in. Probably uh, some of them, but, you know, I would say I'm not an Apollonian, if I understand that distinction. Oh, what? Know? What is that? Well, between an Apollonian and a Dionysian, you know, that the Apollonian is more, you know, um, interested in order and um, rules and being rule bound. And I guess I think of it as being more ascetic. I'm not really an ascetic. I like beauty. But beauty for me doesn't take the form of these kind of like sensual eating experiences for whatever reason. Do you hang out a lot with friends? Do you spend time with friends or do you? I mean, I had a uh, an arithmetic teacher when I was in grade school who said, well, you will realize at a certain point in your life, books are more important than friends. Well, he was maybe oversimplifying things, but um, that's okay. Um, I think both are important. I guess, well, yeah, uh, books are more important. If I had to choose, books would probably be more important because you can't really be a writer and not also be a reader. And if I wasn't a writer, then I don't know really what I'd have to offer as a friend. Um but I don't socialize a whole lot, to be honest. I mean, coming back to the specter of habits and how one lives in the daily life, I find it easier to go with the rhythm and flow of domestic habits when you live with other people. You know, I have a 14-year-old. He, like, wants dinner and he needs to be picked up from the bus stop and also just wants to hang out with me. He didn't, he wasn't in school for almost two years because of the pandemic. And um, so, you know, we're, we're really close and we're his social life too. I mean, he's a very friendly kid. He makes friends easily, but he still hangs out with us on the weekend and he wants to sit on the couch 
and listen to John Coltrane record, listen to a Miles Davis record. And I'm going to do that with him because I think it's, it's a very reasonable thing that teenagers want that I've decided if I may be as simplistic as your arithmetic teacher, which is they want their parents to acknowledge what they themselves care about and feel is important. And I want to, you know, um, make good on that, be in that contract with him. So I do that first. My kid comes first, the daily habits come first, and that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for socializing. It's not a huge part of my life, but, um, I do it sometimes. I'm, I'm going to go to a reading tonight, the writer, Mary Gateskill. I rarely do that, but Mary's special and I haven't seen her in a long time. So yeah, maybe, you know, and I like to go to the movies but I often go to the movies by myself. I just prefer it. But do you, do you have a, a uh, I remember I used to say, oh, it would be fun to see a bad movie. But I don't do that anymore. I mean, I don't feel I have the time. Uh, I don't. Only good movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or you hope they will be, yeah. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious about films, but I, um, you know, I'm interested in what people are making. Yeah, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go on purpose to um, a bad movie. But yeah, there, there isn't that much time, so I guess I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of that. But you're and not- it's just easier to stay home if you're on the fence about something. It's just easier not to do it. <laughs> But you don't feel that, I mean, some people say writers have to be ruthless. They have to, they have to fight to get time. But that doesn't seem to be a problem for you. Maybe it is, and I don't know it. Um, well, ruthless in the sense of shutting people out and creating privacy to work. Yeah. I think that's probably true. I wouldn't have put it like that or thought about it like that. But I think that there is a, a like a, a sense of um, ramparts and a private world that does need to be protected. Um, and if I've gone to like some gallery dinner where I have to make small talk for two and a half hours, that's probably not honestly like a good use of my time. And so if I just simply stay home and do nothing or read part of a novel or read something else or watch a really great film that's streaming on Criterion or movie or something like that, then I feel good and I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing. So I guess there's just that inner, you know, questioning, doubting voice that's useful. Like, are you doing what you're meant to be doing? Which is not a generalizable thing. It's case by case, person to person. Right. Going to other countries and learning other languages, involving yourself with other cultures, is that, do you care or? Well, I'm actually trying to learn French right now. I started as a complete beginner, which is pretty pathetic at my age. Um, I studied Italian when I was younger, so that's the only foreign language I can speak, but you know, not, not very well. Um, and I'd always thought it was too late to learn French, but my husband speaks French and translates French philosophy. And my son speaks French because he went to a French school and we go to France every summer. And a friend of mine who's my age was learning it. And I thought, well, if it's not too late for her, then why is it too late for me? So <laughs> I got a teacher and I'm doing that, but it actually does take a lot of work and time. I do homework every day. And um, I watch these videos and try to approximate a French R and it's going to be impossible for me because it's way too late. But um, I, I am doing that. But I also happen to be writing a novel that takes place in France. So there always has to be some tie in with the things I'm, you know, set my sights on as objectives. Well, I'm sure it's not uh, too late to Master French, I, I think you'll do extremely well. Um, <laughs> I suppose I, I suppose I would maybe end by going back to 
what you said earlier, because I find it so hard to uh, imagine imitating you, but I would like to. Um, You just, uh, yes, admittedly, you've had very good luck in life, but I've also had incredible luck in life. And uh, you, you just don't, you just don't seem bitter. Uh, I don't really think I have anything to be bitter about. <laughs> I, I, I don't. I, I mean, I've, I've had moments where I have felt afraid for society certainly you know and um moments where i've wondered about people you know and not specific people but you know what people are capable of like are they at fundament good and generous or what you know the nature and that's all yet to be revealed or maybe will never be revealed but not about my own um not about my own life, no. Yeah, well, yes, the human being is, is uh, I mean, I suppose that those who have seen the worst of it uh, find it hard to recover, I guess. Um, people who've been in concentration camps or, or wars, uh well we're all going to aspire to the to this uh you know to you 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 have a wonderful appreciation of 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 what has uh, come to you and uh, you're you're working hard to you know, to uh, live up to it. And uh, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, So I don't know. This is, um, I think we could, we could go on. I mean, I could go on asking questions for hours, but I think we should probably uh, leave it. I mean, uh, unless you, would you have anything that you want to add to to our thoughts for our wonderful Haymarket audience. It's so sweet of them to do this. No, um, you know, there's there's an essay in the book about Ruthie uh, <clears throat> Wilson Gilmore, um, who's going to publish a book with Haymarket next year. So that's exciting. I feel a already felt a kinship with Haymarket for a long time. Um, have worked with both you and Anthony on some projects in the past, but I'm excited that they're going to publish her book. And I don't know. I can't think of anything else really. Um, but that book will be about prisons or the. Yes. Well, she's a carceral geographer. And I, you know, and I wrote that long essay that was in the New York times magazine. That's a sort of meant to be a kind of primer um, on her world and um, sets of expertise, which are both broad and super specific. Her knowledge is very, very deep. So I'm looking forward to her book. And I guess I would just thank Haymarket for hosting us. And also thank you, Wally, for being so present and dear. <laughs> okay, friends, I think uh that's it really thanks for listening if you liked this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the haymarket books youtube channel where events like this one are hosted live and don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org